Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Alistair. I'm really delighted to be here. Thanks for asking me. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. And like I say, you've been you've been in this industry since forever when I go through your LinkedIn profile. So how did you end up in recruitment? What took you there? I'm not I'm not sure that many people sort of wake up and and um, choose recruitment. It, it seems to choose you when you you know when I speak to peers in the market, everybody sort of falls into it. Um, and that was definitely the case for me. Um, I think when I finished school, you know, and you have a bit of a gap between finishing school and starting university, um, I was looking for a part-time job to keep me going, essentially, and earn a bit of cash over the holidays. Um, and I did some admin work, essentially, with a, a recruitment business. It was a company called Candle um, back then, um, and they were a tech recruitment business. Um, and this was before the time back in the day when we didn't have integration tools like we do now and, um, you know, re resumes were, were emailed through and you had to manually add them to a database. Um, you know, you don't need to do that anymore. It all sort of magically happens. Um, but it was my job to to add candidates to the database and, and create profiles for candidates in, in our CRM at the time. Um, and I just loved the loved the pace, um, loved the people. It's really dynamic. Um, every day was different. And it and I just kept going, essentially. Um, so yeah, it was never, never meant to be a long-term thing, but I'm glad that it has been. But you loved it. I had a plan in my head as to where this conversation would go, and it and it still might go in the same direction, but I want to deviate straight away, thinking <laughs> about the process of going through those resumes. So so back in the day, much less technology, much less automation, how many resumes would come across an agent's desk and what would you do with them? Look, when I when I started, we had 3,000 resumes sitting in an inbox and I can't remember the specifics as we're talking, you know, this is sort of over 20 years ago now, but it was hundreds hundreds and hundreds of candidates would email through their resumes every week. Um, and every single candidate who had um, a level of experience in technology um, would be added to the to the CRM. Um, and we'd engage with candidates and talk to them about what it is that they were looking for and their skill set and, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, then then go about finding them a role or matching them to the, the requirements that we had from, from clients. How do you go about getting the nuggets of gold out of a typical resume. And I guess you've seen all shapes, sizes and flavours of what people write on them. Um, I think there's a few things. I mean, I, I think it's looking at where where people have worked um, and certain organisations, you know, have, have um, really strong reputations, I suppose, and, and hire really quality candidates. Um, it's looking at tenure, you know, have candidates spent, uh, you know, a reasonable amount of time in a, in a particular role. Um, and, you know, those candidates are, are always candidates that, um, you know, should translate into having tenure and a new opportunity, essentially. Um, and then I think it's tech, sort of technical skill set as well. Um, in terms of what they've actually done, what they've achieved and delivered um, in their roles. They're sort of the things that that I'm immediately looking for when I open a resume. So when you're digging for that kind of information, 
if I wanted to write a resume that's, the, you know, and I've got the right skills, say, um, so it's just a question of making sure they pop on the page for you. What should I do to make sure that happens? I think it's a fine balance between providing enough detail um, on, on what you've delivered. I think it's all about sort of delivery and outcomes. I think if you're in a heavy technical role, if you're a developer or, a, you know, a data engineer or you work in cybersecurity, um, and there's, you know, obviously a number of other skill sets that I would sort of include in terms of that heavy sort of technical space, um, it's really important to showcase the tech stack that you've been working with. Um, that's hugely important, obviously. We have a lot of resumes that we see where that information is missing um, and that's really critical to have. Um, you know, if you've been running projects um, or you're a business analyst um, and, you, you know, it's it's more about the projects that you've delivered, the types of projects you've been involved in and, and you know, what the, the achievements or deliverables have been as a result of that. Um, I'm less interested in education, um, career summaries, those sorts of things. I'm all about what have you delivered, what have been the outcomes, um, and how does that translate into the next opportunity. So it's really important that you bring the results out. You know, not that I was just working on Project X, but Project X did an uplift in revenue or an increase in efficiency, whatever it is. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. What is the benefit that that organisation has realised as a result of that of that piece of work that you know, that project, that sprint, whatever it, whatever it may be. Let's do a few quick fires. Um, what font? Arial. Arial. How many pages? No more than five. Date of birth or no? No. Photograph or no? Hard no. Photograph, hard no. Referees on request or no? Look, I think that's absolutely fine. Um, for me... I mean, we, we never contact referees without the candidate's permission anyway. Um, so for me, it's not something I look for. I don't, you know, if it's there, you know, I don't, it's not something I immediately notice, I suppose, um, on a on a candidate's resume. Hobbies or no? No. I'm mentally checking as to whether mine fits all those categories. <laughs> and, and I think it might, which is all right. I so think it's all about... Um, I mean, look, this is, you know, I think specific to the tech industry. Um, I think, you know, I don't want to speak broadly around other industries because I, I certainly won't um, attest to have the knowledge around those. Um, but I think for me, those things aren't, aren't really relevant. It's all about, you know, the experience and how that translates into the next opportunity. Mm. And date of birth, no. Photograph hard, no. I, I agree with that. And I, th and I think I know why, but I'd be interested in your views as to why they are a no. Um, I think it's, I mean, date of birth for me is just irrelevant. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter how old you are. Um, and, you know, for me, you know, you could have five years of commercial experience and have done more, achieved more, know more than somebody who's been doing a similar role for 20 years. Um, so, you know, again, for me, that's, it's it's not relevant, essentially. Um, I don't think we, I certainly don't hire people based on age. Um, so, you know, to me, it's one of those things that's just not important in the same way that gender is not important. And, you know, it, it's important in terms of diversity and making sure we have diversity, um, but it, it's not um, a critical factor in in sort of 
hiring in terms of that first screening process. Um, so photos on a CV. Look, I think most people have a LinkedIn profile which has a photo. So if people really want to go and see, you know, a visual, then they will. Um, but from a resume perspective, I think it's I think it's a distraction. And when you're reviewing resumes and, you know, you get 100 and then you take it down to 50 and then you might take it down to 10, at what stage in that process do you then go to the LinkedIn profile as well? Because I'm assuming you always do when you get to a certain point. Mm -hmm. Probably probably when you start to sort of get around to that sort of 20 um, number, I suppose. Um, and, you know, I guess when we flip to LinkedIn, what I'm looking for is consistency in resume and LinkedIn profile, really. Um, and, you know, there are a number of, um, or rather, the, you know, there are definitely instances where there's a disconnect between the LinkedIn profile and the resume. Um, and that's something that I'd want to explore a bit further in terms of why that's the case. Um, you know, is there a, a, a role that appears on the LinkedIn profile and is not on the resume or vice versa? And what is the story around that? Um, so, you know, it, it just helps to build a picture, right, which we can then translate when we do a face-to-face -face interview with a candidate in terms of, of understanding that that candidate's history, essentially, um, and whether an opportunity we're considering them for is, is the right one for them and, and um, you know, is are they going to be the right candidate for the client that we're hiring for. And what else on the LinkedIn profile is is important to you as a recruiter? Do you look at things like skills, endorsements, projects? Do you look at the content they're writing about or sharing? Um, yes and no. Um, you know, I think for, again, it depends on the skill set that you're hiring for, I think. Um, you know, candidates who are more more aligned to projects, I suppose, um, are, are probably more inclined to utilise their LinkedIn profile um, as a platform for, for creating content as well. Um, they're more likely to engage, um, you know, with LinkedIn groups, for example, in terms of sharing information and those sorts of things. Um, you know, I think developers, cybersecurity export, experts and so forth tend to hang out in different parts of the internet. Um, so it's not necessarily on LinkedIn. Mm. Um, you know, they're using other other areas, I guess. Um, and, you know, so that's that's sort of a whole different conversation, essentially, or a, a whole different um, sort of place to look. Um, but for me, it's, it's more that consistency piece, I guess. Um, and, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that you can glean from somebody by sitting down and eyeballing them and having, having a conversation about what it is that they want, what they've achieved, what they've delivered and what they're looking for moving forward. Um, so for me, that's that's the biggest um, the biggest point, I guess, um, or the biggest opportunity from my perspective to really get to know somebody and understand who they are and what makes them tick and what their skill set is essentially. Absolutely. The rest is just sort of contextual and, and, you know, is an opportunity for me to ask them questions, I guess when we have that face-to-face -face meeting. I think that's really important. E you know, even in this virtual world, thankfully, the human touch is still really important. And I, and I definitely want to come back to that bit. Just before we move off LinkedIn, do you ever happen across talent or potential candidates? And the reason I ask that, so I had Petra Zink on here, who's, who's an expert in personal branding. And she talks about developing the trusted authority, creating some content, letting your personality show through, but, you know, be linked to the work and the expertise that you're doing so that you come higher up the searches and, and people go, I would go to that person because I think they're, they're an authority in this field. 
And I know someone who wasn't doing an awful lot of traffic on LinkedIn, weren't posting a lot, weren't sharing a lot. And they perhaps got 100 profile views over a 90-day period. And I think that's some of the data that LinkedIn tells you. They then dedicated a bit of time to three months to creating content on a semi-regular basis. And their profile views are 850 for a 90-day period. So they're coming up in uh, in searches more. They're, the algorithm is, is, is promoting their content more. Do you happen across talent? And, and if you do, you know, do you then reach out to them? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think for us, um, you know, as a, as a recruitment agency, um, I guess our value comes in reaching candidates that our clients can't reach themselves. Um, so arguably, if a candidate has a really strong profile on LinkedIn um, and is a really active user of LinkedIn, um, it's likely that our client is able to find that individual themselves. Um, and, you know, while we can obviously approach that individual, I would argue that the value that we offer is in the networks that we've built outside of LinkedIn um, and, you know, those have been built over time through referred business um, and through mechanisms outside of LinkedIn, essentially. So it's sort of that passive network, I guess, that, you know, is the value that, that we bring to the table. Um, you know, I would, I don't want to say that, you know, investing in your LinkedIn profile is, is a waste of time. That's absolutely not the case. Um, and, you know, we invest a huge amount of time in, in LinkedIn and our own branding as recruiters and, and you know, creating content and so forth. Um, but that's not, not necessarily where we add the most value. It is in being able to attract those candidates who, who perhaps don't have a strong LinkedIn presence um, and, you know, being able to, to network outside of LinkedIn. Does that and make sense? It does. It do, and, it, and it plays to the experience I've got. And I think when you have someone who's stable in the industry, because, because you have people that come and go, but when you have people that are stable and have been around for a while, the chances are you'll be placed through them more than once. And the chances mm -hmm. are you might buy off them more than once. And the chances are you might get placed through them and you might buy from them as well. And that's the beauty of the relationships that you build. If you're in an industry for five, 10, 15 years, you're going to use the same people. And if they're stable and high quality and consistent in what they do, then you know you can always rely on them to get them what you want when you need it. Absolutely. I think a lot of the conversations that we have are really cyclical, particularly in the tech space where it's a heavy contracting or labour hire market. Um, you know, you, you're always having those conversations with, with hiring managers around, you know, or, or them coming to us saying, hey, you know, my contract's coming to an end in, you know, six weeks or whatever the case may be, but this is what I'm looking for moving forward. Um, but I'm also after a, you know, X, Y, Z person as well. Um, so it's it's definitely a cyclical conversation, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, you're absolutely right in saying that, um, you know, that often we're engaging with the the same people sort of over and over. And, and you know, you I think the best relationships as a recruiter come from, ones that you've built over time and you sort of follow people through their careers and, you know, they they do one role for a, a period of time and then, you know, they reconnect when it's time for them to to look for the next challenge. Um, but there are definitely candidates in, in my network that I placed 20 years ago who, you know, I'm still really well connected with and, you know, I've placed a couple of times since 
since that initial placement. Um, and that's just really, really enjoyable to see that that career progression and what people have achieved and, you know, what that helps them achieve in their personal life, I guess, as well, um, in terms of the, the financial benefits that they've been able to achieve, um, you know, throughout their career. Absolutely. And there's a lesson for candidates there that if you do take the time to develop a relationship with the people that are placing you, that that will pay dividends in the future. Because to someone that places individuals, if you know you've got a safe pair of hands that that has been proven in the role and they don't let you down and they go through the process nicely, that's a really great person to put in front of a client. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, the relationship between a recruiter and a, and a candidate is... Um, is a hugely valuable one, but it is definitely one that needs to be invested in on both sides. Um, and you know, it's a it is a, a a relationship, I guess, where you both need to bring something to the to the table to get an outcome, essentially. And same, you know, between a recruiter and clients. Um, you know, that it, it's a partnership at the end of the day, and everybody gets the most benefit out of it when there's a, a partnership and there's you know an end goal in mind I suppose um the wheels start to fall off when there's a bit of a, a sort of a short-term view I guess of, of a particular situation um or a quick win that somebody's trying to achieve it's you know I think if you if you've got a long-term view and you've got a relationship um in mind with candidates and clients as a recruiter that's that's certainly where I get the most fulfillment yeah so before we move too far away from the dim and distant past and we're talking about hundreds of CVs going across the desk and manually putting them in the CRM. So hard times, a lot of work to be done. How has that changed now? And I'm particularly interested in whether AI has crept into your business yet or whether you think it will in the next one to two years. Um, it's changed significantly in that, you know, there is a huge amount of automation um, across the recruitment industry now. Um, and, you know, we've got access to some phenomenal tools which really help our role um, and help to sort of expedite some of that sort of more menial administrative work, um, which you know, means that that job I did 20 years ago is effectively redundant now, um, you know, which is, you know, is is um, progress, right? Um, that sort of happens across a lot of industries. Um, so for us, it, you know, it, it really frees up opportunity for us to focus around that relationship piece um, and building networks um, and engaging with our markets essentially um, and, you know, which is, is a great thing, um, you know, to your question around AI, 100% it's it's hit our business. Um, you know, we're really mindful of the impacts of things like ChatGPT. What does that mean in terms of our obligations as a business to make sure that resumes we're presenting to, to clients have been written by a human as opposed to an AI bot? Um, you know, I guess, how do we train our people um, in terms of, of I guess, being able to critically analyse a reference check that comes back to us um, and making sure that, um, you know, if we're not doing it verbally, has it been has it been written by a human or has it been written by AI? Um, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, for us, it's it's about how do we use um how do we use AI and incorporate it into our business to again help help alleviate some of that administrative um, work, I suppose. Um, but educating us our teams around how to use it and and I guess the pitfalls of it it's it's not perfect um and it's not um you know you've got to challenge it I guess to to um or have enough knowledge of of your market and what you're recruiting for and your candidates um you know to be able to critically analyze what it's what it's presenting to you um and 
you know, making sure that that it's correct, essentially. Mm. And is tech recruitment, because I imagine some other recruitment sectors are at this point because they'll deal with bigger volume, is tech recruitment at a position where machines are doing the first cut of the resumes or is it still is there still a human eye on it? Not in our business. Um, I think there's been that narrative ever since I've worked in recruitment that, um, you know, that agencies, and look, I, I can't speak for other agencies, but I've never worked in a business where AI does the first cut. Um, any business I've worked in, it's always been a human that's reviewed the CV in the first instance and all the way through. Um, and it's a human that's making a decision around whether that particular candidate progresses to the next stage of the process. Um, you know, there's there's always been huge narrative around, you know, how to how to build your resume so that you can navigate an ATS, essentially an applicant tracking system. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, that's always sort of been um, just noise, really, because it, it just isn't how our business works or any recruitment business that I've worked in. Um, so, you know, that's that's sort of a, an interesting one. Um but no, I think I've deviated now, and I might have lost my uh, lost my train of thought. No, um, we, we're still there. So, so applicant tracking system. Uh, so I've heard that talked about before. And so you're saying within your business and the businesses that you know, you think there's a false narrative around how they work and and almost how to game the system. What is the narrative that people say about them, which which in your sector you've not seen? Um, I think it's, and look, I I don't know whether it's sort of higher volume recruitment businesses like, you know, contact centre, for example, um, maybe that, maybe it is more prevalent in, in those um, sort of areas. I, I actually don't know the answer to that because it, that's not my um, sort of bread and butter, but certainly, certainly in tech um, or, or more broadly, I guess, rather across the industry is that, um, you know, candidates, can feel a little bit disgruntled um, that maybe it's an ATS or a sort of an AI bot that's making a decision around whether that individual progresses to the next stage. And, and my experience is that that is, is absolutely not the case um, and it has never been the case in my world. Um, so, you know, I think moving forward, you know, everybody is worried on, you know, there's this general commentary across all industries around what impact does AI have, you know, is everybody going to be out of a job, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, but I think for us, you know, our business is, is very relationship-based. We're not a transactional recruitment business and it, and it does come back to those relationships. I think the, you know, the value that we bring to the table is, again, you know, that ability to to tap into um, into individuals who aren't, actively looking for roles um but it's very difficult for an ai tool to understand you know what a, a specific candidate is looking for understand the nuances of of that individual's particular situation and what they need in terms of you know a work from home or hybrid working solution um you know salary expectations and and i think that you know people are by nature so different um that it's very difficult to put Put an algorithm around that when every individual is so different um and i think for for us it just becomes critically important for us to be able to analyze you know what is coming our way from ai um and then you know making sure that we build those relationships to then be able to connect people and connect organizations to people essentially and ensure that there's a match um and you know i, I don't know that ai will ever replace 
the ability for humans to connect and build relationships. Yeah, I definitely hope not. Um, and it, it, when you mentioned the, um, the the fact that AI might create someone's resume, naively I didn't think that that would be a thing. But but I guess it can be, and that's the value proposition of the real human connection. So I did say at the beginning of this that I've never had to edit one of these before, but technology's let us down. So um, we've had a short break and then we're starting again. Um, after, after what you were talking about then, I didn't realize that people might use ChatGPT to cheat on a resume, perhaps naively. Um, so that really is the value proposition because eventually when you're dealing with high-value, high-skilled roles and you look into the whites of someone's eyes and you talk to them, that's where you're going to find out whether the resume is nonsense or not. Absolutely it is. And I guess, you know, when you've worked in a market for a period of time and you understand, you know, things about certain organisations as well, um, you know, you have the ability to, I guess, ask questions of candidates and, you know, what their experience is in certain environments. And, you know, if that doesn't translate and reflect your understanding of, of that organisation or, or whatever the case may be, then, you know, I guess it gives you cause to sort of pause and, and probe a little bit deeper, I guess, with that um, that candidate. So, um, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's it's about how does that experience fit into, you know, your broader picture of the, the market and organisations and how they operate and the type of profile they typically hire. And you can't possibly know that about everything or everybody in the market or every organisation, but, you know, you certainly over time build up that knowledge um, and, you know, you can recognise patterns and, you know, you can recognise behaviours, I guess, in, in candidates as well um, and, you know, how, how someone engages, I guess, and the communication style and the frequency of communication and their availability, um, you know, reflects their level of interest in, a, in an opportunity, right? Um, and, you know, I think at the point where you tell a candidate that they are successful and or they're the preferred candidate, that's when the rubber has to hit the road from their perspective and they've got to start putting some skin in the game. Um, and if you can sense a change in their behaviour at that point, I'm deviating a little here, um, you know, then you need to start asking some questions and managing expectations, um, you know, on, on the client side and, and with that candidate as well. Um, and, you know, to link that back to AI, I'm not sure how AI can can do that. I don't I'm think not it saying can. Never will be able to, but um, it's just so nuanced um, you know, all those things. Um, and it's different for every individual um, because every human is different, right? Um, so, yeah, it's I find it fascinating, um, you know, just to, to see how people engage and communicate and how that can change, um, you know, in, in, in quite short spaces of time as a, as a recruitment process progresses. I think that's such a really good point. And I think I'm sure one day AI will be clever enough to do that. But 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 I hope we never adopt it because I think that human part's really important. And I think if you're a candidate and you may be not interested in a job or you're stringing a few things along and you're not completely honest with the partner that you're working with in in the recruitment agency and you think you're getting away with it, you're not. Uh, <laughs> the recruiter knows what's going on. So I think, and I'm interested in your view, I think you've got to be honest with who you're dealing with. You know, if you're spinning two plates and you're looking at two offers, then then be honest about that. 
Because the amount of people you deal with day in, day out, year in, year out, you're going to know if something smells a bit odd. Oh, look, absolutely. And I think in in technology, if if you don't have multiple opportunities, I would be surprised. So absolutely, be honest um, about it. If, if the role is not right for you, um, that's okay. Um, you know, talk to us about why. Um, and we'll help you find something better that ticks those boxes. Um, and, it's, you know, we've, we've sort of talked a lot about the, the candidate side, but I guess, you know, from the client perspective, you know, at the point of offer, the rubber's kind of got to hit the road on, on that side as well in terms of, of clients coming to the party and, and um, you know, expediting offers and, and those sorts of things. So, you know, I, I certainly don't think that the onus is, is purely on, on candidates in the recruitment process. Um, and, you know, recruiters play a big, a big part in, in facilitating both sides as well um, and, and making sure that conversation happens. But, I mean, honesty is always the best policy. Just communicate. Um, you know, there's not a lot that anybody can do if the conversation stops. Um, so, and look, you know, I think it's it's really important that recruiters communicate really effectively as well, um, you know, so we need to, to stay engaged in the process and, and keep the conversation happening as well. Um, so we've certainly got an obligation on our side. And, that, and that's what marks out the good from the bad. And you know when you get in that level of service, I always remember when I was moving to Australia and I had a lot of late night calls with someone we both know, Gerard Creedon. And he, he was asking me, he was, he was asking me what I thought were weird questions, but they weren't. He was saying, have you told your wife? Yeah, yeah, I've told her. <laughs> what, what are you doing about the house? It's on the market. What are you doing about the kids' school? Yeah, yeah, I'm investigating it. I know what's going on. And I thought these were stupid questions because I was committed to the move. But of course, they weren't stupid questions because as a recruiter, you will have asked similar questions of people and they'll have pulled your chain and it will have got to the offer stage and they'll have gone, ah, it's a bit hard, actually, I can't do it. Absolutely. Um, and I and I laugh because, yes, they probably did feel like strange questions. But, you know, if you're if you're entertaining a big move and you haven't spoken to your significant other about it, then that's a problem because what if your significant other is not on board with that significant move? You know, um, it's it, it it's going to cause a problem at some point in the process. Um, and you know, if you're looking to relocate and you haven't sort of given any consideration to where you might live or general suburbs, or you know, if you've got children, where are your kids going to go to school and what does that look like? Um, you know, if you're offshore, how if you don't have an understanding of the visa process in Australia? Um, you know, you're likely to come unstuck at some point in time. And, you know, it's it's our obligation to explore all of those things um, because we don't want to get to a point with a client where they're super excited about hiring somebody um, and, you know, your significant other says, well, no, I'm not moving from, I'll pick Gerard's hometown or home country of Ireland to, to Australia. Um, you know, that's that's not going to happen. Um, and, you know, it's our job to to know that and understand that and and do what we can to to sort of help the situation I guess um and you know that might just be educating the candidate around you know great suburbs to live um or you know introducing them to real estate agents that we might be aware of or you know giving them some names of great schools for example um you know all of those things are things that recruiters can can help with um you know to to sort of help facilitate a move I guess um so, yeah, it's definitely not silly questions, that's for sure, but I understand that it might feel invasive um, as a candidate for, for those sorts of questions to, um, to be fired your way. 
Yeah, they felt odd at the time, but then you learn that the the trade that you're in and how candidates can can behave at time and humans are humans and they're all different and that's what makes the world a wonderful place. Um, the the diversity that we have, but you have to manage that. I guess speaking of diversity, and we mentioned it a bit earlier on in terms of the the, the recruitment process and and how you can disadvantage yourself or, or you know co- cause problems that you perhaps don't want to. A lot of content that you get involved in on LinkedIn and you talk about is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And as a woman in and around the technology industry, I guess you've seen a lot over 20 or so years. Um, what kind of how do you feel that we're faring now compared to where we were even five years ago? Look, I think there's been some incredible, um, incredible progress in this space. Um, but I think it's one of those things that is never finished. Um, you know, you, there is no end point, I guess, um, you know, when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And I don't know that we can ever be doing enough. Um, and, you know, organisations have different resources, right? They're at different stages. Um, they have different abilities to to invest, I guess, um, and different drivers as well. So, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's certainly come a long way in, in 20 years from a, a diversity and inclusion perspective. Um, but yeah, certainly still lots that can be done um, across that space. But yeah, it's it's something that I'm really passionate about and, and um, it's a really exciting space, I think. And clearly without talking about clients, so so we can be talking about mystery people from many years in the past. What's some of the, have you ever, ever seen any egregious behavior? Have you ever seen a particular role that's maybe got a REM benchmark between 100 and 120 and, you know, the man would always get off at 120 and the woman would always get 100? Do, do those kind of things go on? Um. I mean, you know, the the evidence obviously supports the pay disparity. So I'm, I'm, you know, I can't sit here and say that that doesn't happen because obviously the data says that it does. Um, so, you know, I think for for me as a recruiter, it's my job to to find a candidate at the dollars that a client wants to pay with the skill set that the client wants to pay. Uh, or sorry, that the, the client is looking the skill set that the client is looking for. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, that doesn't matter whether it's a, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a male or female or, um, you know, non-binary individual. Um, yeah, it's just the best candidate for the job. Um, you know, it's it's probably, I've certainly seen instances where um, people haven't necessarily been hired on merit or the best candidate hasn't been hired based on merit. It, it, you know, they may have been hired on, on gender and, you know, there's diversity targets that are being kept in mind. Um, and, as a recruiter, I, I fundamentally believe that you should appoint somebody based on merit, um, and you know what that actually looks like in in every organisation is is slightly different because in some organisations, and you know there might be a particular role where you know technical skill set um, is more important over cultural fit. In other organisations, maybe you take somebody who is a really great cultural fit and is seventy percent there from a technical fit perspective. Um, so, you know, again, it's really nuanced, right, um, for, for different organisations. Um, it, it's very hard to have a one-size-fits-all sort of approach when it comes to, to diversity and inclusion because, it, it you know, it, it's hard to 
it's hard to then cater, I suppose, for, for those nuances in organisations who are sort of scaling or, you know, large corporates, those sorts of things. But, you know, we certainly need to have a base level around, you know, what happens from a diversity perspective, uh, you know, particularly when we're talking about, you know, people who uh, present with a disability or neurodiverse, for example, and, and all of those sorts of things. Um, you know, we, we need to be able to facilitate a, a really great recruitment process for people like that and an onboarding process. And, and you know, once they're in an organisation, they need to be supported. Um, so it's much greater than, you know, than, than just gender diversity. Um, it's about how do we look at, at hiring people in a different way um, and attracting people in a different way and, and um, you know, making sure our organisations are set up to support people in a way that allows them to be the best that they can be um, in, you know, and that looks different for everybody. It's not a one size fits all. Definitely. And in terms of amazing behavior from organizations, and, and when you talk about neurodiversity, you know, that, that could be a really good example because there could be particular uh, accommodations that might need to be made during an interview process, you know, depending on the nature of the job. What are some of the most amazing behaviors that you've seen organizations do to, to you know, welcome all, all forms of diverse culture into their organization? Got one particular client who does a really good job across all of those things, I think. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons why they're so good at it is because it's something that they're passionate about. It's something that they wholeheartedly believe in. It's not a tick box exercise um, and they invest in it um, heavily um, and understand that it's there may not be an immediate return on investment, um, but long-term, that's what they need to do to make sure that they have um, the best workforce that they can possibly have and that they are as attractive as they possibly can be as an employer to the broadest range of, of people, um, essentially. So, you know, it's a really strategic sort of hiring um, decision for them. Um, but I've, I've certainly seen them, um, you know, the, their diversity um, statistics are, are far stronger in terms of the balance that they've achieved compared to, to a lot of other organisations that I've seen. Um, they do a really great job in terms of altering their recruitment process for candidates who um, disclose that they may be neurodiverse um, and what they need from, from that perspective. Um, so it's it's having that fluidity in their recruitment process to, to be able to set people up for success um, and also to support hiring managers in, in how to facilitate an interview, for example, with somebody who may have, you know, additional needs or, or you know, just need something else um, to, to allow them to shine during an interview process. Um, and, you know, really great um, initiatives that they do around, um, you know, parents um, or, you know, people who have, you know, the need to um, recognise particular um, sort of religious holidays, for example, or, you know, need to be able to pray at particular points in the day, um, you know, feeding rooms for return to work mothers, you know, all of those sorts of things, they just do incredibly well. Um, but also, you know, a significant investment in, in sort of like refugee, you know, bringing people in uh, who have refugee status from from other countries, really skilled workers, um, and you know providing opportunities for them, and that's something that they've done in conjunction with the federal government, um, and then supporting initiatives around you know particularly sort of women in tech um, and 
educating, you know, the next generation of, of women, essentially, um, and bringing them through and giving them graduate opportunities and, and ensuring that they have a, a successful career sort of moving forward. Um, so they, yeah, they do a, a huge amount um, from a sort of a diversity and inclusion perspective and do it really, really well, but it's ingrained in their culture and they wholeheartedly believe it um, and invest in it and, and understand the value of it. Um, it's not just a tick box exercise. And it sounds like they're covering all the bases there because because there's the immediate day-to-day activities, the things you do now, like you say, the recruitment process and making accommodations there. Writing the adverts in the correct way is something that, that I've heard about as well. But what's what's interesting about that one is it sounds like they're also playing the long game because to your point, appoint the best person for the role, but play the long game to make sure that you're widening the talent pool and providing more opportunities five years in the past that when it comes to interview time, you've got a full range of people to choose from. Absolutely, absolutely. Because, you you know, you you want those people to be approaching you. You want those people to be applying for your ads um, and you want recruiters to be comfortable that that the candidates that they present are going to have a great experience regardless of of who that individual is essentially um, and that that experience will be tailored to to that particular individual. Um, Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, they do a really great job, really, really great job. Brilliant. I'm glad they're out there. It's an important thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I think, I think as a, as a client who is in the market to fill some vacancies, I think it's really important to have an open mind. If there's an area you don't know about, try and educate you and and perhaps even work with with the agency that you're working with to educate you if you've got any particular gaps. And I'm thinking about the story there about the changing the interview process to cope with with neurodiversity. So if that's something you don't know about and and not everyone's an expert in it, and that's fine educate yourself if, if you think you know if you think that's going to be relevant in this process because it's better for the candidate and and you're widening the pool you're giving more people opportunities and and again appoint the best person for the job you know you, you might just find that there's the best person there that that if you understand and can accommodate the process you actually see the talent that exists Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, you know, there are some really wonderful success stories um, where the hiring process has been um, sort of amended, I guess, or or, um, or changed to accommodate a, a particular requirement. Um, and that individual has gone on to just achieve really, really great things. Um, and, you know, they get promoted and, you know, the loyalty is, is phenomenal. And, um, you know, it, it yeah, it, it just helps everybody. It's it's phenomenal, absolutely yeah. phenomenal. Brilliant. So um, thinking about the employment market right now, so we've come through a really interesting time, pandemic, no migration into Australia, a um, lot of work getting canned, and then all of a sudden work starting again and no people. So we've seen some real ups and downs. Um, what, what's that looked like at a macro sense for the past couple of years? And, and where's the Queensland market at right now? 
I think it looked like, um, you know, a, a fairly healthy um, sort of increase pre-COVID um, and, you know, it, it dropped off a cliff um, when COVID hit and lockdowns happened, you know, in Australia um, and, you know, different, you know, Melbourne was obviously far worse hit than Brisbane, for example, in terms of lockdowns and so forth. But, you know, we talked about that sort of or that B-shaped recovery was was sort of a, a terminology that was used a lot when we're kind of deep in, in COVID in Australia in terms of the, you know, the employment market. And it did absolutely do that. It it it, um, it came back up very, very quickly, particularly in, in tech. Um, and, you know, to be to be fair, tech didn't really stop um, because tech was was often um you know, under pressure, it was probably busier than than most in terms of being able to realise efficiencies for businesses. A lot of businesses found themselves caught with a workforce that um, couldn't mobilise and work from home. Um, so it was, it was, you know, the technology teams that were making that happen around the clock um, so that businesses could continue to operate essentially and, and make money and, and service their clients. Um, but, you know, the, the market over the last 12 months in tech has just been absolutely... Phenomenal. I've never seen anything like it, um, in, you know, in, in certainly in my career. Um, and I think we've started to, to and I'm going to say thankfully, see that calm down a little bit. Um, and I think we're sort of going to back to what I would sort of say is, is pre-COVID uh, norm or normalising, I suppose, which, you know, might feel like the market is, is sort of flattening, um, but I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. I think we're just coming off a, a post-COVID boom. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said for a market that's a little bit more measured, um, where both candidates and clients can take a little bit more time to make sure that they're making the right decision. Because um, certainly last year, there was a huge amount of pressure on recruitment processes to make decisions quickly. And I've never worked in a market where candidates were, were pressured and clients were pressured to make decisions about each other in such a short space of time on such a short amount or small amount of information. And, and inevitably, candidates were sort of calling back and saying, I'm, I'm not sure that I made the right decision. I think I might have taken the wrong role um, because they didn't do enough due diligence. And same with clients. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for just slowing things down a little bit. Um, you know, we don't want to go too far the other way where, um, you know, people are taking too long and, and opportunities are missed, um, but it's a balance, right, um, in terms of making sure that your recruitment process as, a, as an organisation is, is quick enough to catch great candidates, but where everybody has enough opportunity to ask all of the questions that they need to ask to make sure that they're making the right decision and that it's a, a good match. It's definitely easier now. It's not easy but it's definitely easier than it was a year ago to find talent mm -hmm. in the market. So it feels about the same as it used to be. And I think the salaries that people are requesting are a little bit more measured now because they were probably a bit, quite a bit wilder a year ago. So I think that might have calmed down a bit from the small corner of Queensland where I'm sat, what I'm looking at. Um, in terms of you talk about speed of interviews and, and how fast people were moving you know, just after the pandemic and, and kind of how it's calming down a bit now. This is a subject of much debate online in terms of how many hoops you expect a candidate to jump through, how many interviews, tests, no tests, coffee catch-ups, no coffee catch-ups, meet the CEO, don't meet the CEO. For a, for a mid to senior role in, in the tech space, what's typical and, and what, what would actually your optimum be? I think once you start getting past 
two interviews for most roles. Look, I think I think contract and perm are two different propositions in terms of the recruitment process. Most contract opportunities would be hired on one interview yeah. um, and that would be sort of the industry norm in, in the tech space. Maybe if you're talking about a super senior role, there might be a second conversation, um, but typically one interview and, you know, offer or don't offer um, essentially. Um you know, it, I think it is dependent on the role, but for a perm role, you know, two interviews, but in fairly quick succession, if you're doing a first interview on a Monday, you're probably doing a second interview on, you know, Thursday or Friday of the same week. Um, otherwise, you lose um, you lose momentum, yeah. candidates start to disengage, they move on with other opportunities. Um, and, you know, I think you you sort of just, just lose, lose your opportunity, essentially. Um, you know, the world moves on. Um, you know, I think if, if it's a senior exec role, um, then arguably, you know, there's probably a third, potentially even a fourth conversation, but I think that's getting a bit much. I think three for a really senior role is, is probably about right with that third meeting probably being, you know, a meet and greet with the, the CEO, for example. Um, and that's probably more, um, I don't want to say a rubber stamp um, conversation um, because I don't think you can ever be complacent with those sorts of meetings. And I've definitely seen things go wrong um, at that part of the process. Um, but yeah, I, I think two is 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 ample and three is, or, or two is sort of a good balance um, and three is, is probably about the extent of where you'd want to push it. I, I've never really understood these organisations who have, five, six, seven interviews. I don't really know what there is still to talk about at that particular point, to be honest. Um, and I just I just don't understand it. I don't understand it. Well, that was going to be my next question, which maybe you can't answer, because it was where people do deviate and and it's multiple interviews and it goes on and on and all of a sudden there's perhaps new hoops being thrown into the mix. Why do you think that is? Why do they? Why, why do they, they do that? Extend the recruitment process. I honestly, I honestly don't know. I think sometimes it comes from an organisation not knowing what it is that they want exactly, um, and maybe they've gone to market. And and you know, I saw your post recently about um, about you know putting thought into what it is that you want, uh, measures of success, you know, what that candidate looks like, or you know, all of those things. Um, and I think for for us, we probably see less of that because it's part of our job to help an organisation understand what what it is that they want um, and what the measures of success are and what a candidate profile potentially looks like before we take it to market. We can't really do our job unless we've understood those things, um, and you know we're likely to miss the mark if we if we don't ask the right questions um, at at that sort of point of of job brief, I guess. Um, so we probably don't see it happen as much, um, and you know as part of that conversation is, well, what does your interview process look like? Um, and, you know, we'd certainly be consulting with an organisation if they said, well, we've got to have six meetings and they've, you know, the candidate's got to meet, you know, John and Sarah and, you know, Sarah's partner and, you know, maybe they'll go and have to take that child on a play date and, you know, whatever else. Um, so, I'm, you know, I'm making light of the situation now, but, um, you know, we'd, we'd consult with them around, well, why do you feel as though you need to have those conversations? What, you know, what is the purpose? What's the intention? What are you trying to achieve? Can we do it in a different way? You know, we've definitely had situations where organisations have said, you know, it's two interviews and a technical test and then they have to do a presentation. Okay, well, 
you know, is there a way that we can streamline that into maybe two conversations? Does that make mean that, you know, the first and second interviews are maybe slightly longer than you would otherwise do? Is there a different way that we can do the technical test, for example, um, you know, where the organisation can still achieve what they need to achieve um, and, and get that level of understanding and information that they, they're used to, but in a more streamlined way that's sort of more, more efficient, I guess, for, for both the organisation and, and the candidate at the end of the day. Yeah. And if someone if someone's doing a panel interview how many people on the panel is too much in your opinion i think 3 is perfect 4 4 is is acceptable i think anything more than that is is a bit much just too much for the candidate to cope with too many eyes to look at yeah, absolutely. I think it's a little bit intense. Mm-hmm. Um, look, again, there's there's probably situations in certain roles where, you know, maybe that's valuable. Um, but I think certainly in the tech space, you know, three is ample and you're probably looking at a direct manager, maybe their two-up manager and maybe a stakeholder um, that, that would be the panel. Uh, maybe you have a fourth person who is sort of a bit neutral um, and can offer a completely different perspective um, and isn't sort of immediately connected. Um, that that would sort of be my suggestion around the makeup of a of a panel interview. And I ask these questions because when when you move into a position of leadership and you have to build your team and you're doing recruitment, nobody teaches you how to do it. At least I've never been taught. So I've been to interviews as I've moved through my career and seen good ones and seen bad ones and then done interviews and done good ones and done bad ones but nobody ever teaches you so as a client it's it's really easy just to go oh let's just get moving and and bumble our way through the process but to create a really good employee value proposition enhance the reputation of the organization when you're in market you kind of want to do it properly what do you see as some of the really good things that you can do to be a first class client from job brief all the way through to interview and, and you know, onboarding and beyond? I think it certainly starts with the job brief and it's understanding what it is that you want, what your interview process looks like, what the measures of success are, you know, what do you want that person to achieve in the first, you know, 90 days? That always sounds a bit cliche, but, you know, what does the first three months, six months, 12 months look like? Um, you know, understand what the career progression looks like for somebody in that organisation. Um, you know, have a really good onboarding process. Um, and, you know, the I guess, one, the recruitment process. So what is the experience that that candidate has, you know, before they get to the point of offer, you know, interview um, in a timely manner, you know, respond in a timely manner um, and always communicate if a candidate's unsuccessful. Um, You know, I think everybody's had an experience where they've gone for an interview and then, you know, you sort of seemingly get ghosted. I mean, that's not really okay. Um, And, you know, it certainly doesn't reflect overly well on on a business um, or a recruiter, to be fair. Um, You know, recruiters certainly have an obligation to provide feedback um, and make sure that that we get that from the client as well and pass it on to a a candidate. Um, But then, you know, a really good onboarding experience. You know, there's nothing nothing worse than rocking up on your first day and your laptop's not ready or, you know, you don't have a desk assigned. Um, You know, a a really slick onboarding process um, where, you know, a candidate knows 
exactly where the bathrooms are um, and, you know, who their colleagues are and, um, you know, what the expectations are and, and all of those sorts of things, um, you know, make sure that they're not sitting there wondering, I guess, in their first week where, what they're supposed to do and where they're meant to go and, and all of those sorts of things. Um, you know, huddle around them and give them a really great experience, go, you know, take them out for lunch in that, like they're really small things that have a massive impact um, and, you know, you know, that onboarding process is, is really, really important. Um, and then it just sort of kicks on on from there, I suppose, um, you know, in, in terms of that employee experience um, and understanding expectations and um, going from there. That's really good advice, the, the little things. So, so what I'm hearing is, you know, know what you want, be really clear, be fast through the process, communicate well through the process, and then dedicate time when they start and think about the little things. I love that. I love that idea of taking them out to lunch, you know, clearing your diary for that first week and going, I know the organization's busy. I know I've got a lot of things to do. I know I've got some priorities, but if I set this up right, this is going to pay dividends now and into the future. And that's really, really good advice. On the candidate side, what can a candidate do to be a dream from end to end through that process? I think just communicate openly. Communicate openly about what it is that you want and need um, in, in the next opportunity. Um, and that makes that makes my job easy, right? If you have a really clear idea of what it is that you, you want and need and what that looks like, um, you know, I will do my darndest to find that for you. Um, it, you know, it it's hugely difficult when someone hasn't really considered those things or they're not confident in verbalising it. We're really, and look, I think a lot of candidates are really uncomfortable talking about money, talking about, um, you know, because it, it, it sounds demanding, mm. I guess. Um, and, you know, I think there's still, there's still that perception that talking about money is, is a bit, um, I don't know, a bit dirty maybe, um, but that's what recruiters do day in, day out. We're, we're used to that conversation um, and, you know, there are, it, it's also, it, it, it's in your interest to do that because we definitely have conversations with candidates who haven't realised their earning potential in their current role um, and we can help educate them around what it is that they should be asking for essentially um, or also if you found yourself in a situation where your expectations are too high um, and you're missing the mark and, and are therefore missing great opportunities, um, you know, we can talk to you about that. Um, and maybe there's a, you know, an offset in terms of, you know, a training budget or, you know, greater flexibility. You know, there's all sorts of different things that organisations can do. Um, but, you know, you've got to be brave in having the conversation around what it is that is important to you um, and, you know, what it is that you want and need, um, you know, for, for a recruiter to be successful um, and, and do the best job for you as a candidate, essentially. And that money bit is the hardest bit. I think a lot of people stumble over that. So so let's go through an example that let's say, so you've, you've been briefed on a role, uh, program manager, you've got, you've got a REM of somewhere between, I don't know, 160 and 185. That's the range. Probably seems a little bit narrow. So you know you can pay between there and perhaps, the, you, you know, you know the clients may be interested in paying on the lower end, but maybe that's valid, maybe that's not. So then you sit down with a, with a good candidate that's got a good chance and you say, what are your REM expectations? Well, I'm saying that. Yeah, actually, could you tell me how that conversation goes and, and how a client, how a candidate could do a good job in that conversation? 
I think it goes one of two ways. A candidate, you know, when we say, what are your expectations? Um, you know, it's certainly not the first question. There's, there's usually, you know, a, a reasonable conversation that happens prior to that. Um, but a candidate will either have a really clear idea of what that is um, or they they won't want to play their card first and they, they want me to put a number on the table essentially. Um, and, look, that's fine. I will always ask the question first um but i can sense very quickly you know whether a candidate isn't isn't going to table their their requirement or their request essentially and look that's absolutely fine um you know for me i need to understand what my clients pay bracket is essentially and what they've got to play with and also understand whether there's perhaps a bit more in it or not um, for the right candidate and usually we will have had that conversation but also to understand what the what the other opportunities are in terms of, you know, what else they can offer to a, a candidate in, in non-monetary sense or non-monetary terms. Um, and that all just becomes part of the conversation, right? Um, so I've got to understand what it is that a candidate needs and wants to be able to facilitate that conversation essentially. Um, but I would say, look, this is the this is the ballpark salary. Um, you know, are, are we in the ballpark essentially? And we either are or we aren't. Um, and if we aren't, then, you know, what other things are important? What, what could make up the difference? Um, so, and look, more often than not, you get there. Um, I reckon it's probably only probably less than 5% of the time that, that you can't get there and, you know, that's just not the right opportunity for that individual and that's okay. You you know, you move on and, and focus on something else and that's okay. So, not every opportunity is right for every every candidate and vice versa. Yeah. So it's just open communication again. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Don't, don't be scared to talk about the numbers. Absolutely. Open communication all the way through. If you've got other opportunities, just talk about it. You know, that's absolutely fine. Um, we, we're used to that as recruiters. We expect it. Um, you know, we usually lead with that. Hey, I, I appreciate that you've probably got other options. Can we talk through what they look like and where this role sits on, you know, on your list of preferences and, and why, essentially? Um, because, again, that's, you know, you, as a candidate, you can kind of use that to your advantage, you know, in terms of you don't necessarily want to play one off against the other, um, but, you know, you want to use it as an opportunity to, to explore your options, essentially. And, you know, if it's kind of that you don't ask, you don't get situation, you know. If you if you don't, um, nothing ventured, nothing gained, I guess. Um, you know, put it out there and see what you get back. I like that advice. So as we get to the end of this conversation, I'm interested in, in the 20 plus years you've spent in this industry, you've seen a lot. And, and technology is a human-based industry. So companies make money by aligning people to, to do the right things in the right way at the right time with the right tech to deliver the business outcomes. And you've seen companies do that well and you've seen companies do that badly based on the use of those people. Do you ever feel that you're sat on an insight based on all these companies you've worked with that you go, God, they always get that wrong or they always get that right? And if you are, what might it be? What is it that they always get right or always get wrong? Yeah. That's an interesting one because, again, I think it's so so nuanced. Look, I think organisations that get it right are the ones that we want to work with, right? Um, 
because it's a no-brainer that their, you know, their value proposition is is significantly stronger. It's the organisations who have high turnover um, and, you know, it's a challenging environment um, and maybe they pay below market for whatever reason, you know, there's a whole variety of things. Um, you know, maybe they aren't conducting a great recruitment process. Maybe there's a huge amount of bias that's introduced into their recruitment process and, you know, they're not open to... to um, you know, being flexible in how they hire essentially and, and overlook really great candidates for whatever reason. Um, you know, there are, we don't work with everybody, I guess. Um, you know, we're, we're certainly, and this, you know, I don't want to sound um, flippant, but, you know, I guess we're, we're lucky in, in our business that we can choose who we work with. Um, and if we don't feel as though, our values as as um, emanate, um, or, or my values as as an individual align with a particular business, um, then I won't work with them. Um, you know, it's it's as simple as that. Um, you know, I I can't in good conscience put a candidate into an environment where I don't feel as though they're going to be successful or be supported, or they'll have a bad experience, um, and I I won't do that. And and on the flip side of that. You know, I've definitely had situations where we've got to a point with a candidate, um, you know, where they've been offered a role um, and I've subsequently gone to the client and said, look, you know, for these reasons, I now feel as though this candidate is not the right candidate for you um, and I think we need to go in a different direction. Um, so, you know, it's it's my job to do that and I guess, you know, ethically um you know I, I have to kind of live and die by that otherwise i couldn't sleep at night You're paid to do a job we've got to do it well absolutely it's a job i love well thank you very much philippa i've loved this um i've got a lot of insights into both the market now and also how i might conduct myself better as a client and, and possibly even a candidate at some point in the future you never know you never know thanks so much alistair i really appreciate it thank you thank you